Mark chapter 3. You can turn in your Bibles or your devices to Mark chapter 3, and we've got a chunk of Mark chapter 3 in order to cover. And while you're on your way there, I just want to remind you or let you know, perhaps, about the prayer seminar that Pastor Kenny and I are teaching together in three weeks. So on Saturday, I believe it's November 12th, Kenny and I are going to be teaching together a prayer seminar right in that room, right back there. Uh, Just the fact that Kenny and I will be teaching it together should be worth the price of admission. But we are going to... Yeah, it is free, absolutely. We're going to be talking about prayers that connect with the heart of God. How do I pray for my kids, my my grandkids? How do I pray for my work? How do I pray for my finances, for my home? Whatever it is, we're going to be talking about the ways that God has taught us to pray about those things and different models throughout the Scripture that He's given us for prayers that connect with Him. So you can register for that event uh, online as well, and it is free, but there is a lunch, so we would love to know that you're coming, if you could register. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, The big question that I have for us as we jump into our passage today is this. Who's the authority in your life? What does authority look like in your life? We have a lot of different areas of our lives, and there are different authorities in those different areas of our lives. When we were kids and we went to school, We sat in a classroom, and there was a teacher who was the authority in the room. And if the teacher said, I want everyone to be quiet, we were all supposed to be quiet. right? We were all supposed to be quiet at that point, because the teacher is the authority in the room. I got sent to the principal's office way too many times for not acknowledging the authority in the room. Anybody else with me on this? All right, a few people. Absolutely, you guys. If you join the Marines and go to boot camp, there's going to be a drill instructor, and that drill instructor is going to be an authority in your life. And if that drill instructor tells you to sit down, you need to sit down. And if you decide in that situation that you're not going to pay attention to the authority, the consequences are worse than going to the principal's office, right? When we grow up in the homes that we grow up in, our parents are an authority in our life. The Bible says when we're a part of a church, there is this thing called overseers who are an authority in our life. If you decide to drive home at 85 miles per hour down 169, you may see flashing lights that indicate there is a state trooper who is an authority in your life. We have all sorts of different authorities in different parts of our lives. Some of those authorities handle that authority very well. They use their authority for the benefit of others. They seek to do good with their authority. There are others who use that authority in unwise ways. They use it in ways that are selfish. They use it for their own benefit. They use it in ways that damage others. Now, the worst thing that we can do is look around at a world in which there are more and more authorities using their authority in unwise ways and say, I'm going to reject all authority except my own. I will be the ultimate authority. Instead, God says, no, 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 no. Submit yourselves to the one true and perfect authority. Submit your lives to the one true and perfect authority. 
As we've been looking at this sermon series, Jesus Revealed, with each passage that we have been looking at, we have been seeing a different part of the nature and character of Jesus revealed to us. And today, as we look at Mark chapter 3, the focus is going to be on the authority of Jesus. We're going to start by seeing that Jesus has all authority over the physical and the spiritual creation. He has all authority over the seen and the unseen. Look at the first few verses of our passage. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idiomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus at this point has crowds coming to him from over a hundred mile radius. He's at the Sea of Galilee, and there are people coming from as far south as Idiomia, which is south of Jerusalem, and as far north as Tyre and Sidon. You can see Tyre up there in the red box. Sidon's far enough north, it's off the map. And so from this hundred-mile radius, thousands upon thousands of people have come to Jesus and gathered around him, and they are pressing in on him to the point where he's got to get into a boat or he will be crushed by the crowds. And part of what we see in this passage is that Jesus has full authority over the physical creation. There are those who are coming to him with physical ailments and sicknesses, and we are told that Jesus has healed person after person. Those who are sick are are those who are crushing in next to him to try and touch him in some way. We also see Jesus operates with full authority over the spiritual creation. Those unclean spirits come and bow before him and recognize him as the Son of God. And when they do, what does Jesus say to them? Don't talk. Right? That's what Jesus said to them. They come and bow before him and acknowledge him as the Son of God, and Jesus says, shut your mouth to them. Why? This is the second time we've seen this in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 1, there was a demon that bowed down before Jesus and said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, don't talk. Now the demons are declaring him to be the Son of God. And he says, don't talk. Why is Jesus shutting the mouths of demons who are rightly proclaiming his identity? There are a number of reasons, but let me give you a couple that maybe pop to our heads right right away. The first is this, Jesus has a timetable, and he will not let them push the timetable. He has a specific timetable for his death and resurrection, and he is going to reveal himself in a way that fits that timetable to lead to the exact time when he will choose in order to give his life and take it up again. And he is not going to allow the enemy to push that timetable by revealing his identity in any way. But secondly, and I think more importantly, Jesus doesn't want his ministry associated with the enemy. These are unclean spirits doing damage to people, working against the things of God. Jesus doesn't want to affirm in any way they're on my team. 
There's already going to be people who accuse Jesus of having these demons on his team. And Jesus doesn't want to affirm that in any way. And so he says, no, 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 don't talk. You are not to be my witnesses, you demons, you evil spirits. Right? He doesn't want their ministry to be associated with his ministry and, mi and mission in any way. And so Jesus silences them. And we see his total and complete authority over what? Over the physical creation and the spiritual creation. This is a theme in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 1, the physically ill are brought to him and he heals them. The spiritually ill with unclean spirits are brought to him and he casts them out. Chapter 2, a man is lowered down through the roof and Jesus shows he has all spiritual authority and forgives his sins. Then shows he has all physical authority and says, get up to the paralyzed man. Chapter 3, we see it again right here. Chapter 4, Jesus is out in a boat and there are waves and wind and storms so great that the professional fishermen in the boat believe this is the end of their lives. And Jesus stands up and rebukes it all and it is quiet and it is still. And then when he lands on the shore, Jesus comes face to face with the most powerful demonic force anywhere in the region. Right? The name is Legion, for we are many. And he has total and complete control of this man that nobody wants to come face to face with. And yet when Jesus comes face to face, there's not even a battle. Because when Jesus speaks, Legion does whatever he says. Because he has total and complete authority over the spiritual creation. This is a constant theme throughout the Gospel of Mark, throughout the Gospels, where there is this presentation of Jesus' authority over the physical creation next to his authority over the spiritual creation. Because he has all authority over the seen and the unseen. And friends, if Jesus has all authority over everything that is seen and over everything that is unseen, then if you want to grow to become more like him, do you believe that he then has the power to help you do that? If you want to make an impact in the kingdom of God beyond what seems reasonable for who you are, do you believe he has the power and the authority to help that happen? Absolutely, 100%. He has all authority over everything that is seen and everything that is unseen. What else is there outside of those two categories, by the way? He has all authority. And so the question is, does he have full authority over your life? If he has all authority over the seen and the unseen, does he also have full and complete authority over your life? Jesus has all authority over the physical and spiritual creation. And because of that, he has full authority to be followed. Right? To be followed. Next verses say, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then in the next four verses, he names the twelve, right? We, we name the twelve then at that point. Jesus has all authority to call people to come and follow him. And the purpose for their following is so that they might be with him. Right? I'm calling you twelve to come and follow me so that you might be with me. That is the ultimate purpose of Jesus calling to follow him, is so that we will be with him. Be with him. At the home of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, Martha's running around serving like crazy, and what is Mary doing? 
She's just sitting with Jesus and being with him. And Martha comes and complains and says, can you help her? Can you tell her to help? And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm not going to tell her to help because she has chosen what is better. Right? She's chosen what is better, being with me. Jesus calls us to be with him. This would be a strange call if Jesus was just a guy. I'm calling you guys to come and follow me and just be with me. Oh, and not just you guys. I'm going to call all people everywhere to set aside their lives in order to come and be with me. In order to be my follower, you need to die to self. In order to be my follower, you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. In order to be my follower, I need to be more important in your life than your family, than how you make a living, than any accomplishments. Right? Jesus is making these calls all the time to people. Being with me is more important than any of those things in your life. Wouldn't that be a crazy call if he was just a guy? But he has all authority as God in the flesh. And so he calls us to come and be with him. And we see in this passage, not only does he have all authority to be followed, but he also has all authority to be shared and served. They come to be with him, and what flows out of their being with him? He then can send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. They're sent out to spread the word and serve him. Spread the word and serve him. That flows out of being with him. First we be with him, and as we behold his majesty and his glory, it inspires us to go out and share him and serve him. That's the way it works in the scriptures. You think about Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is called into the heavens, and he stands before God. And as he stands there, he is overwhelmed in his worship. There's majesty and glory and beauty of God right there in front of him. And he's struck by his own sinfulness and God's righteousness. He's struck by his own smallness and God's enormity. And what does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. He is in real worship at this point. Right? He is meeting with God in real worship. And so when God then says, who will bring the message of coming judgment and the need for repentance to my people? Isaiah very naturally responds, here I am, send me. Because sharing Jesus and serving Jesus are the natural outworking of beholding Jesus and seeing his greatness. Sometimes I think when churches have a lack of serving and a lack of sharing Jesus, they think the answer is some sort of better programming. We really need uh, better gift assessments. We really need better trainings. We really need the pastor to put more guilt on people so that they'll serve in my ministry because I'm lacking people. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with trainings or assessments. Those things can be very helpful. But ultimately, any motivation, proper motivation for sharing Jesus and serving Jesus is always to flow out of great worship of Jesus, of beholding who he is. 
And it's only when we have real worship face-to-face with God that we then have the proper motivation and inspiration to share and serve the way that he's called us to. One of the unfortunate things that has happened over the last 50 years in the American church is that in the name of making sure that things are uh, immediately applicable for people, churches have gone away from preaching about the glory and the majesty and the greatness of Jesus in order to make sure that everything can be immediately relevant in your lives. Here's three ways to be a better person in this way and four ways to be a better person in this way. And everything in the teaching has become about you and how you can become a better person. When in fact, God says, sharing and serving are to flow out of real acknowledgement of my greatness and beholding my beauty. And in, for the sake of relevancy, worship has been abandoned. Genuine worship has been abandoned. Seeing God for who he is. Loving him because of his greatness. Jesus is the authority to be shared and served, and that flows out of our being with him. Right? So he has all authority to be followed, for us to be with him. All authority for us to share him and to serve him with others. But this isn't where his authority ends. We must submit to Jesus' authority. Look at verses 20 and 21. After the names of the 12, we read, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Jesus is so overwhelmed by the crowds at this point, they can't even live life. They can't eat. They can't get away. They can't function in normal daily life. And his family hears about this craziness of what is going on in his life. And he says, our son, our brother, he must be crazy. we got to go and get him. Right? Are, are they ready to submit to Jesus' authority? No, they're, they're seeking to exercise their authority over Jesus in this situation. Well, they're not the only ones who don't recognize Jesus' authority. Look at the next verses. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says to the scribes, Do you realize how dumb the things are that you're saying? You're saying that Satan is casting out the servants of Satan. What sense would that make? Satan wants to win. He's not going to fight against himself. Let's say that we went out here to play uh, a very serious game of football on the grass out here. 11 on 11, right? It's going to be a, a huge battle for something, I don't know. And we go out there to play football, and Paul and I, we're on a team together, right? Paul is the quarterback, and I am the running back. And every time the snap is snapped to Paul in our 11 on 11 game as the running back, I just turn and tackle him. Right? The first couple of times, everybody's going to be like, what? And then people from my team are going to start to yell at me. Why are you tackling your own guy? Right? How are we going to do if 
every time the ball is snapped to Paul, I just tackle him. We're not going to do well. <laughs> right? Because a team that is fighting against itself like that is never going to win. Jesus is like, guys, Satan wants to win. He's not going to cast out his own servants. It doesn't make any sense. He's like, no, 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 no. I am the strong man who binds his servants. That is what is going on here. And then Jesus goes on to complete his teaching and says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And, whoever, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Here at the end of his teaching, Jesus says, there are all sorts of blasphemies that a person might enter into, all sorts of sins they might commit, and they can be forgiven of those things. But there is this one thing, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that is unforgivable. To, to understand a little more of what this means, look at what Mark adds to this. Right? Mark's gospel in this passage, we read, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Right? So we can blaspheme. Jesus says you can blaspheme the Son of God and still be forgiven, but you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit and be forgiven. What does that mean? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Seems kind of important to know, right? Since you can't be forgiven. Well, let's start off with this. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Blasphemy is treating the holy as unholy. Let's define blasphemy first. It is treating the holy as unholy. We might be tempted to think that blasphemy is claiming to be God. Because Jesus claimed that he and the Father were one, and they immediately wanted to kill him because they said he was guilty of blasphemy. And so we might be tempted to think, well, blasphemy means claiming to be God. But that isn't the definition of blasphemy. As a matter of fact, we see Stephen in Acts chapter 6 accused of blasphemy against Moses. We see a group of believers in, Romans chapter, or in Revelation chapter 16, they are accused of blasphemy against God. Well, they weren't accusing God of being God. That's not blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is treating the holy as unholy. And so Stephen in Acts chapter 6 is accused of blasphemy because he said that the law of Moses was fulfilled in Jesus. And when he did that and said that law is done for us, Everybody said, that is blasphemy against the law of Moses. You are treating the holy law as unholy by ignoring it. In Revelation chapter 16, those who are blaspheming God, they are treating holy God as unholy. Jesus, when he claims to be one with the Father, in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, is treating holy God as unholy by connecting God to himself. They're saying, you're denigrating God by saying you're one with Him. Right? You're treating holy God as unholy. You can't be saying stuff like, the Father and I are one. And so what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is treating the holy as unholy. Jesus says, there are going to be people who blaspheme me, and they can be forgiven. 
Right? Can you think of people who blasphemed Jesus, who treated the holy work of Jesus as unholy and were forgiven? Right? How about his family that we just saw, who watched his holy work and said, we think he might be crazy. Right? They treated the holy work of Jesus as unholy. And yet within the early church, some of the greatest players were Jesus' brother James and his brother Jude, forgiven and free. How about somebody like Paul, who was Saul, who thoroughly rejected Jesus and then rejected all of his people and then ultimately repented, received forgiveness, and spent the rest of his life serving Jesus? How about all of those who chanted, crucify him, crucify him? Peter says to them in his sermons in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, you killed the Christ. Right? This is Peter's gospel message of Acts 2 and Acts 3. You killed the Christ. But if you repent, those sins can be wiped away, he says, and refreshment can come from God. All kinds of people blaspheme Jesus, and yet repentance was possible for them. So what is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that can't be forgiven? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to treat the holy work of the Spirit as unholy. If blasphemy is treating holy work as unholy, right? Blasphemy of the Spirit is to treat the holy work of the Spirit as unholy. Well, what is that holy work of the Spirit? The holy work of the Spirit is to convict the world of sin and judgment. Jesus says about the Spirit in John 16, and when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus says the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction into people's lives about what is wrong and what is right and the judgment that is to come. And the Holy Spirit brings that conviction upon the world. But that's not the only role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, just a couple verses later, the work of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus says, the primary purpose in the Holy Spirit's coming is to point to me, to bring all glory and honor to me. You want to see a person whose life is controlled by the Holy Spirit? It's a person who makes much of Jesus. Right? You want to see a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit? It is a church that makes much of Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit's goal is to glorify Jesus and to exalt Him. That's why He has come. Ultimately, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment and to turn their eyes to Jesus and the work that Jesus did. Right? Everything that Jesus has said and everything that Jesus has done. The gospel message. And if a person 
over the course of their lifetime rejects that holy work of the Spirit to bring conviction of sin into a person's life, to turn our eyes to Jesus and seek salvation through his work, they cannot be forgiven. Right? Let me say that again. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to treat the holy work of the Spirit concerning conviction of sin and turning to Jesus as unholy. And if over the course of my lifetime, I treat the holy work of the Spirit to bring conviction of my sin and to turn me to Jesus for salvation, if I treat that holy work as unholy and reject it, I have rejected the gospel and I cannot be saved. I have rejected the gospel message, which is about my sin and about turning to Jesus in faith and the work that he's done on my behalf. To reject the work of the Spirit is to reject the gospel because he's the one who brings conviction of sin. He's the one who brings uh, the, the proper pointing to Jesus and all that he has done. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to treat the holy work of the Spirit concerning conviction of sin and turning to Jesus as unholy. If I do that over the course of my lifetime, then I experience eternal separation from God because I have rejected the work of His Spirit. I have blasphemed the work of His Spirit and treated what is holy as unholy. We must submit to Jesus' authority. That's why the Holy Spirit came, to glorify Jesus and to call us to submit to the authority of Jesus. And it's when we submit to his authority that we are saved and made new. Finally, we must obey Jesus as our authority. We must obey Jesus as our authority. And his mother and his brothers, here we go, it's family time again, came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says, To be a part of my family is to be obedient. We don't become a part of the family by being obedient enough. But when we enter into the family, we are entering into the kingdom of Jesus, which means we bow to King Jesus and we are obedient to him in everything in our life. And Jesus here, this is one of many places that he establishes the new family that he creates within the family of God. And again and again, he communicates this new family that is a part of the, of the kingdom of God that is now your priority family. Right? My priority family isn't about blood relationships. It's not about legal binding. Jesus says, no, your priority family are those who are part of the kingdom with you. Right? He, he says, I've come to, to divide. Even within families, three against two, there'll be division because I've come. But your true family now your true family are those who are in the kingdom with you. Those are your true brothers and sisters. That's your true family that we acknowledge. And now we are a family of obedience to him, seeking to be obedient to Jesus in each and everything we do because he is king. He has all authority in our lives. Let me 
ask you guys a couple of questions as we wrap up. The first is this. Have you submitted your life to Jesus' authority? Right? Has there a time where you first said, yep, I've been living life under my own authority and I need to submit myself fully and completely to Jesus' authority. I need to call upon him to save me from my sins and bow before him and enter into his kingdom under his authority. Has that happened in your life? If not, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love for you to put that down on a connect card. We'd love for you to talk to somebody out at the welcome center. There'll be prayer ministers up here to the side. We'd love to pray with you about that. For those of you who have, who are followers of Jesus, the next question is for you, is there a part of your life that needs to be resubmitted to Jesus' authority today? Part, part of the Christian life is the constant resubmitting of parts of our life where our authority has crept in again and again. Our authority creeps in a little bit over here over time, and it creeps in a little, and we are constantly repenting of that and coming back and resubmitting those parts of our life to him. And say, no, no, Jesus, we don't, we don't want to rule. We don't want to run that section of our lives. We want you to have full authority and reign. Are there any sections of your life this morning where there needs to be a resubmitting to Jesus that would take place? I want to encourage you to just bow your heads for a minute with me. And would you take a minute to talk to the Lord about any resubmitting that needs to take place in your life today? Would you stand with me? As we submit parts of our life to Jesus, as we submit ourselves fully and completely to him, we submit ourselves to the one who has all authority over every part of creation. Our submission to him is ultimate good news because he operates with all divine wisdom and authority as he oversees and guides our lives. And we want to praise his name right now as we sing a song about him overcoming, that he 